0: we're combining all the best old school wisdom with all the top new school methods to bring you the optimal way to coach and play the great game of baseball this is the 80 20 baseball masterclass with with, with coach Bo. Welcome eighty twenty baseball coaches, this is Coach Bo. Man, I'm fired up to, to get this episode out to you. In this episode, we're going to talk about getting hitters better by doing it differently than it's been done since the beginning of time with batting practices. We are going to discuss randomizing your batting practice pitches and explain, and we're going to discuss, and I'm going to explain, And try to illustrate and highlight the importance of keeping our batting practices similar and, if possible, almost identical to the game. All right, I'm super excited, super excited about this episode. I think you're going to get a lot out of this. And my goal is by the end of this episode, you, you are not going to look at batting practice at all the same. And when I say that, I'm speaking to most of you coaches out there because the mindset and the approach to batting practice has been the same, stagnant, same way of going about it, the same method for so long, 100, probably over 100 years of just simply throwing up that batting practice fastball. This was about 20 years ago, I asked a, a hitting coach, I was playing professionally, so it was probably about 15 years ago, and I was—I asked the coach, I said, why do you guys not you know, make it a little harder in batting practice and why don't you throw change-ups and breaking balls and things like that? And the answer I got, and it's the same answer I've received since then, as I've asked so many coaches this same question. Well, you know, we we just wanna get their confidence up. You know, we want the hitter to be confident. Now, in that particular case, we're talking about before a game, but I've also had many coaches tell me this during the practice time, and it just absolutely is perplexing to me that this particular way of going about baseball practice and game prep has lasted almost in the same identical way the same identical method and looks almost identical how long this has lasted is just perplexing and that it hasn't one completely been eradicated or you know how, how it hasn't gone extinct or at least 95 percent extinct because we all know there's going to be contrarians and then there's always going to be some outliers you to want to do this and that but it's it's amazing I, I really think the ratio should be flip-flop i bet there's less than five percent of coaches that are randomizing their batting practices their actual day-to-day or every, you know, their pregame batting practices and things like that. I, I bet there's 5% that are or maybe less than 5%. One out of 20 coaches is my guess. And that's and that's being generous only because I think the game has come a long ways in the last 10 years when it comes to thinking outside of the box when it comes to coaching. Obviously, money ball and stuff like that, sabermetrics and things with stats has come a long ways for a while now. But, the, but on the field training and on the field coaching has come a long ways. Let's be real. It's absolute dinosaur coaching. And it's amazing that the this is, this is the case. Now, let's get right into this. When I hear this, well, I want my, my players to have confidence when they go to hit and I want my players to feel good about their, their swing when they go to the game and get into the game and get into the batter's box. And I, I just think this is the ultimate coddling. And when you coddle, when you coddle anybody in life, you don't make them better. You don't. You're not making them better. Confidence comes from game success and hitters know that batting practice fastballs are supposed to be smoked they know they're supposed to be hit hard it's like graduating from eighth grade right no no real cause for celebration graduating from college now that will boost the self-esteem a bit more right i look at this flaw similarly also to our society i look at this flaw of let's throw a batting practice fastball and get our confidence up by lowering the bar so our kids feel better. Uh, you know, I mean, I think a lot of you just hearing this right now are, that are doing it this way and have done it this way or that's how you were taught to do it, you're already going, oh, I, I can start to see where I'm going with this. You can see where Coach Bo, where I'm going with that. You can go, oh, okay. Take a look at this. I'm going to draw it into real life situations here. I, try, I like to bring in some real life situations to kind of, you know, outside of baseball to give a, a similar, almost identical look, but with kind of different circumstances to get a better picture of it. Because sometimes we're so stuck in the way that we learn as a baseball coach or a baseball player it's really really hard for us to think that it's something different is better or that there's another way and that goes for really anything in life as I'm sure all of you would agree I thought of this one the other day I thought it was interesting I was trying to think of good examples to share with you about this message of why we should make batting practice tougher why we should randomize it and get our ratios of pitches similar to those in the game and not just sit there and throw cookie cutter fastballs up there at 58 miles an hour I look at it similar to this flaw this general outlook in society on weddings and marriages the wedding it takes place after nine whole months of relationship and it's celebrated by hundreds of people and thousands of dollars and it can really be accomplished rather easily by anyone in fact you could go in in an hour, go down to the the court, or go to Vegas, and uh, you know, on a late flight today, and, and get married. There's not a whole lot of accomplishment. I really feel that you know, I think a lot of you would agree to getting married, but a 40 year wedding anniversary, a 40 year marriage. Keeping that together, that takes a massive amount of effort, a massive amount of energy, a lot of work, sometimes daily for four plus decades. Now, that's an accomplishment that will make a person extremely proud. So... That gets a few phone calls and maybe a gift card to Sizzler, right? Well, I'm telling you, batting practice, baseball players, kids, they know they're supposed to just hit that fastball. There's not a lot of sense of accomplishment for hitting that batting practice fastball. And when I say fastball and batting practice, I mean, I'm not even talking about a game like fastball. I'm talking about a coach just trying to throw it over the plate and typically not throwing it, you know, with as much velocity as they could or getting close enough challenging in and out, trying to find some holes with that fastball. I'm just talking about throwing it over the plate and letting them swing away. My point is self esteem comes from real challenges. Success against difficult obstacles, not a short a short relationship like an engagement and a quick trip to the jeweler and definitely not against a hundred year old batting practice fastball, your basic fastball that doesn't have much of anything to it. A plain Jane, easy to hit fastball is not going to build confidence in your hitters. It's just not. And not only that, I mean, now we're now we're talking about self-esteem, but let's get into the actual improvement of skills and techniques and swings and timing and driving the ball and things like that. It's just not gonna get you prepared for that. And I would argue, and, I'm, and I'm, what I'm saying here is that I don't even think it actually does the self-esteem thing. So I think for years, coaches kind of said, well, it may not quite help their swing improve and the skill and the technique of their swing, but hey, at least my hitter are going to be confident when they get in the box for the game. And I think on both sides of the equation, it does not help the hitter. Maybe hitters would be better at handling failure during their game at bats if they endured a little bit more realistic amount of failure during batting practice. That's the way to think of it, right? If they're having all this success and are hitting a lot of balls consistently in batting practice, then come game time and the other pitcher is a lot more competitive than than the coach throwing batting practice fastballs and he's throwing a good breaking ball or he's mixing it up and he's really competing and he's trying to get a hitter out. You're going to have more failure. And so why not mimic batting practice a little more closely to the game atmosphere and the the game rate of failure? I'm not saying go out and try to really just make hitters fail during batting practice above and beyond what might be expected in a game, but you got to keep that realism and that authenticity of batting practice to the game and, and i think my point on this one is it's gonna help i think it's gonna help hitters handle the failure come game time when they fail in their at-bats in game time not that they're trying to fail but when they do and they inevitably inevitably they will fail more often than they succeed as a hitter for the most part unless you're just a high school all-american you know who's got a 550 on base percentage and a whatnot but they're going to fail more often than not. And so I think that kind of better prepares them for the game, having a more realistic batting practice. So also another another example or another reason why I think that it's really important to have batting practice mimic the game. There's really no urgency to make adjustments and fixes and improve during practice when everything is roses and players are just crushing the ball off the wall and crushing the ball and hitting just at worst case they're hitting a the hard ground ball the vast majority of the time. So there's not going to be much urgency. There's not going to be, the desire to make a lot of fixes because the struggles just aren't really there. And if they are, they're few and far between because the pitches they're seeing are just meatballs and everybody's getting their home run swing on and whatnot. So I look at this like an analogy to like taking a test in school. Batting practice fastball. If that's all you see is a simple fastball and BP. And worse is when you see an underhand toss, a soft toss underhand. That's one thing if you're doing it in the cages as a drill. But I see this out on main diamond batting practice drills. This is crazy. I mean, even if you're sitting in a chair, coach, just throw it overhand. Don't underhand it. I look at this like, this is the same as studying for a test in school, and you gotta study. The test is going to be on chapters one through four, and you only read, and you only study chapter one, and you know nothing, you don't practice, you don't see anything from chapters two, three, and four. How are you gonna do on that test? All right. Yeah, you might guess and get an answer right, especially on those Scantrons. And you might run into a a hanging breaking ball you ran into it, it was a little bit more just coincidence. But overall, it's not a good approach. So this is exactly the equivalent of a pitcher throwing only batting practice fastballs. And here's a good baseball comparison. Have you ever before a game, have you ever before a game had or seen or as a pitcher done this? Go in the bullpen and your pregame bullpen, even your practice bullpen, and all you do is throw fastballs. When you have a changeup and when you have a breaking ball, I understand youth levels, they may just be sticking with the fastball, hand size and mound distance and things like that, and just overall control of the body. Sometimes you got to stick with that fastball and just really hone that in when you're six, seven, and eight. But when you get to a certain age and you have a fastball and a breaking ball and a changeup, or you have at least a second pitch, can you imagine pitchers? Can you imagine Max Scherzer going into the bullpen before a game and Mad Max is throwing fastball, he throws 40 fastballs or 30 fastballs, not one off speed pitch, not one changeup. Not till the very first pitch or the second or third or fourth pitch of the game, does he actually get the grip of a changeup and get that throw and that feel for that? No, it's not happening. It's not happening. This just doesn't happen. And so that's the exact same thing, and that's in the exact same sport. Yet if somebody said, Hey, uh, so you when you take your pitchers down to the bullpen before the game, you know, you obviously just have them throw fastballs, right? You don't 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 have them ever throw their other pitches they they would look at you like you're crazy yeah we go out on batting practice and all we do is throw these batting practice fastballs and which is even worse because at least a pitcher throwing a fastball is going to be probably throwing at game speed and and off of the the game distance mound and everything's going to be realistic in game intensity but a batting practice fastball not only is it one-dimensional in terms of pitch type but it's a lesser version of that one version of that one pitch, for the most part. When you talk about the general velocities and movement and, and approach to hitting inside and outside parts of the plate from the you know from the opposing pitchers, come game time. All right. Oh man, baseball has always lagged and dragged its methods slowly towards progressing, and this has to be the ultimate of those. This has to be the ultimate. And I know I'm kind of going on, but you, you have to hear me. This this is something that needs to change. This has to change. And you know what? The good news is those of you listening, 80-20 baseball coaches, you guys have a huge advantage. Those of you that are already doing this, and I'm sure there are some of you listening that are already doing this, keep it going. Double down on this, all right? And I'm going to share some bullet points on the steps that I think work the best here at the very end. Those of you that are not doing it, as soon as you switch, you're going to give your team a huge competitive advantage because the majority, I mean, the vast majority of coaches and teams are not doing this. You know, it's an interesting note here is you are seeing major league hitters. I've seen uh, an improvement. I haven't seen in the, the stats and the data on this, but it seems like I've seen an improvement on them hitting off-speed pitches and things like that, especially the breaking ball. And I think a big part of that's probably related to them in, in their training, not their batting practice, but in their training, whether it's in the tunnel, under the stadium, or their own personal training in the off-season, I think a lot more of them are using and hitting a lot. Uh, they're, they're turning those pitching machines' velocities way up. They're getting closer, so they want to mimic something being 100 miles and 105 miles an hour. So when they get in the game and that 95, 96 is not super extreme to them. I also see the pitching machines these days are, there's a lot of good pitching machines out there that you can randomize the pitches. And I think, but they're expensive. But I think these professional teams, college teams, high level high school teams, these teams that can afford it are getting those. And it really, I think it's helping the hitters react and not just sit there dead red. And it's making it more game-like. So thus they're going to have more success when the game comes around. So I'd be shocked if the entire baseball world is not looking back in just 10 or 20 years. Now remember, this has been something, a method that's been going on, a strategy, of, really not even a strategy, just kind of a, a way of practicing and pregame prep that's been going on for 100 years. So when I say I'd be shocked in like 10 or 20 years if we're not all laughing unanimously about the fact that 99% of batting practices are so far from replicating an actual game, an actual at bat in a game, I would be shocked if, if we're not looking back and just kind of laughing at it and just like, can you believe all they used to do, all they used to just throw? I mean, I don't know. I, I It would shock me. But then again, baseball is so slow and people are so just kind of stuck in their ways. And this is how my grandpa did it. This is how my dad, this is how my coach in high school did it. And I don't, it's hard to see something when it's not the normal, when it's so different. Not that it's so different to throw multiple pitches, but it's so different than just what's really been out there for so long. And as we finish off part one of this episode, remember to check back in and listen to part two of the randomizing batting practice episode. But I want to finish part one by saying this. there is huge, There are huge competitive advantages in baseball when it comes to the training and the coaching of of your team. There are huge advantages because baseball is so outdated in so many ways. Now, that doesn't mean there's not a lot of great coaches out there. What I'm saying is, the models, the methods, the methodology, the training, you know, modalities, things are just, and especially when it comes to running practices with teams, it's just so outdated, and there's huge advantages in efficiency, authenticity, I mean, you can go on and on, there's so many advantages to take advantage of as a coach to give your players a better practice, and so, in. We'll get into part two, and in part two of the randomizing batting practice, you're going to learn ratios that I, I recommend as far as how I recommend running a batting practice with a certain ratios, and also some other strategies to optimizing your batting practice. And at the very beginning of part two, we're going to discuss how this outdated model would kind of look in other areas, like other sports and things like that. And I try to kind of give some hypothetical examples of how other sports would look if this is how they were doing it. And again, it, it gives you a chuckle, but it also gives you... A little bit of context and in, in that we can see how poor baseball training is and how far it has to go when it comes to a training or when it comes to practices the individual training has made leaps and bounds. The drive lines, the Eric Cressy's, the Texas baseball ranch, the Tom houses, the Florida baseball ranch. these guys, they've made huge strides with that. And in all your local areas, all your local spots have made big, big strides. But when it comes to that team coaching and running a practice and running it efficiently as a coach, as a head coach, there are some huge advantages. And we're going to get into that in part two. So make sure to check out part two. Now, before we get, or before I see you back here in episode 35 for part two of the batting practice training and the applicable part, the actionable steps that you can use out there in batting practice to make your batting practice better, I want to share with you a bonus here. I read an outstanding article the other day by Mike Reinold. Mike Reinold is over at MikeReinold.com, Mike is Mike in Mike, R-E-I-N-O-L-D.com, if you are a school coach, definitely a college coach, a pro coach. You need to read all of his stuff. If you're a youth coach, it may be a little advanced some of the stuff he's talking about and that's okay you can go and read it it's interesting stuff he puts out good videos he does a good job of explaining it he also is used to working with very advanced athletes and that's okay now what i'm going to do is take this article his study that he wrote about in his article and i'm going to try to break it down so every coach out there every parent every player can understand what i thought it showed and what i think he was trying to convey and he does a good job of explaining it's a very well written article and i just want to put it out there in even more of a layman's term approach. The article is titled, The Real Reason Why Weighted Baseballs Increase Pitching Velocity and Injury Rates. The Real Reason Why Weighted Baseballs Increase Pitching Velocity and Injury Rates. You can go read all the numbers that he came up with or that the study came about with and the conclusion that he he made. And the article, go read it at his website. And you may be thinking, well, why am I qualified to talk about this particular subject, the weighted ball subject. And I think that's important. Credentials, resumes are not always that important. I think at the end of the day, you got to listen and do your own deducing, your own vetting. And I love deducing and using deductive reasoning, but I also like to just see if things add up. And we'll get into that in a second. As far as my background on this, I have a lot of experience in this subject. One, I'm a kinesiology major. Now sure, that had a lot of PE classes involved, but we did do muscle biopsies. I had courses like exercise physiology, anatomy, and classes like the biomechanics of sport and exercise. so there was definitely some coursework, course loads there. That was based in what he's talking about here in this article, weighted baseball study that he did. I also pitched at Long Beach State for four years, you know, a super high-level well-coached program, and I played professional baseball as well. I've trained pro college and high school players using weighted baseball programs, a system that I that I used from all the research and all the training that I've received and all the testing that I did. And I put together a system and I've used that with professional players, players that pitch at the major league level all the way down to high school players I designed that system using all the research and programs like I said that have showed that have shown promise that are out there number four I got certified by Tom House originally a while back I got certified by Tom House in the National Pitching Association now Tom House has gone more into quarterback coaching working with Drew Brees Tom Brady and some of those studs but he really was big in pitching and still gets involved with pitching and he knows so much about pitching but the National Pitching Association I went and did a pretty intensive certification and a, much of it was based on weighted ball training Training. Some of those practices have come about and evolved and changed that, that we learned, but the understanding of it was very much discussed at this training. Also, I've been over to driveline. I flew over to driveline earlier this year, and I watched all their athletes in action. I watched closely. I got a good tour of it, so I've seen driveline in action. And lastly, I've done the majority of the weighted ball exercises that are discussed in these programs, that are done in these programs. I felt firsthand what's going on in the arm, in the shoulder, in the recovery periods after using weighted ball ball throwing programs. In fact, I was using weighted ball training back in 2004 when I was playing professionally. Now I was kind of willy nillying it and that's kind of what Mike gets into in this article is like, hey, these willy-nilly programs and even some of these that seem to be more advanced programs, we got to be cautious with because there are still questions to be answered. Now Mike is a physiotherapist, an athletic trainer, he's a movement coach, he's worked with many professional baseball players. Over a couple decades of experience in this stuff, you know, when you read this article, you'll see, see exactly that he knows or he has that experience but he's very upfront about there's still questions to be answered so before I jump into my take on the article and what every coach, player, and parent can learn from it, I want to briefly discuss studies, in which I'm going to throw some caution to the wind. I'm going to talk about studies, studies in general. We hear a study on this, a study on that, and science says and studies, okay, it's everywhere now, in my strong opinion. And I've spent a lot of hours talking with my brother-in-law who designs, creates, builds, and runs studies. He's a professor over at the University of Colorado Boulder. Now, he's in the subject of criminology, so I don't really get into that too much because it's way over my head in terms of the stuff he's learning, the stuff he's looking at, but I do spend a lot of time talking to him about the construction of quality studies. It intrigues me. I love science. I love studies, but I'm intrigued by the fact that we just give so much credit and believe so quickly studies without actually just simply breaking them down, and I also think in the school systems, we don't do a good job of teaching students, middle school, high school, how to thoroughly vet a study and really kind of essentially score it and give it a score in terms of its credibility and whether we can take the conclusion and trust it at all or a little bit or a lot. And so in my strong opinion, many studies out there we see in today's society, when we read these, we need to take some steps back and we need to thoroughly vet these studies before we give one ounce of credence to any of these studies. We all come across a plethora of studies, and we hear these studies get cited day in and day out, and I'll cut right to it. Here are my six steps. So, you know, there's a lot of people out there in the world, right, that are saying this is bad or that's not good, That, but they don't really give you their action plan, and I try to really avoid that. I always say if I'm going to have, I think it's a first step to know that one thing is flawed or something is flawed, you must know that there's a better way, or how would you know it's flawed, right? Inherently, if you can, dedu- deducing from that or doing using deductive reasoning, if you can Say X is flawed, there should be another alternative. You can't say that something is flawed without knowing that there's a better way. You can say, hey, I don't know, it doesn't seem right, but you can't definitively say something's flawed. So I want to share with you the six steps, the six questions I use when assessing the validity of any study or any data set. And yes, what I'm about to discuss can and will help you assess any study from anywhere done on any topic or subject in the world. Any topic, any subject, any study that you come across. Here goes. Number one, sample size. How big is the sample size? How many subjects, how many things people are studied? How big is the sample size? Is it dozens? Is it hundreds? Is it thousands? The bigger the sample size, obviously the better. Now, number two, how random was that sample size? How random were the participants? How were they selected? How randomized was it? Was it a good assortment of people with a wide variety of characteristics? If not, then it's not very random. If it's not spread out across many different demographics, then it's not very random. Number three, how long did the study run for? Over what period of time was it conducted? Weeks, months, years, decades? This was a six-week program they did, but they also did a follow-up over the over the season, the one that Mike Reinold and his group did, his team did. They did a six-week program, but they followed him up afterwards, which I thought was great. He didn't just conclude and come up with his conclusions at the end of the six weeks. They followed him afterwards, the season that followed the program, and I thought that was good. Number four, was there an acutely observed control group? Was there a control group and was it acutely observed? Was it given a, 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 a strong sense of priority? Was it or was it just kind of done because that's a box they had to check? Was there a control group? Was it run appropriately? So there has to be a control group. In this study, there was a control group. And it's, interestingly, Mike and his group and his team found that there was an improvement in velocity in the control group and they were not doing any throwing of weighted balls. Number five, speaking of control Control group, how many of the dozens, the hundreds, the thousands of variables that could have influenced the outcome of the study? How many of those variables that come into play that impact the outcome of the study, that impact the outcome of the results? How many of those were controlled for? Now that's different than a control group, all right? A control group is simply taking away the one variable or the two variables and not like, for example, in this training, the weighted ball training. They did, the the control group did everything else that they normally did, but they did not use the weighted balls they threw, they, they did strength training, but they did not use that. And that's a good start. That's good to have that control group. But the biggest flaw that I see in that I see in studies and the biggest reason that I strongly, absolutely strongly, strongly believe that studies get way more credit and credence and they're believed far more than they should be. And it all falls on a spectrum, right? Every study falls on a spectrum in terms of credibility and the quality of the construction of that study. But it, to me, it's the biggest thing is you cannot control. It is so hard to control when they build these studies. It's so. It's almost impossible to control the variables that come into play. There's so many variables in life. There's so many variables in the world, in, in baseball, in training, that it's almost impossible to account for the impact that each one of those variables has on the result, has on the conclusion of, say, study X. Now, we can definitely do a good job and definitely work to reduce the variables and to identify isolate the variable that we're testing, but... Man, oh man, there's just so many variables out there. I highly recommend you go read a book that has nothing to do with baseball, but I'm telling you, it's a great read. It's a classic. Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I got it right here in my hand. I read it years ago and it was just fascinating. And it really, it, it, it has a lot of different parts to the book, but a big part of it is talking about studies and hypotheses and things like that. So I think that's definitely well worth the read. Get the audiobook version or you know, I I listened to the audiobook, but I also read the paperback a second time. I was so intrigued by it. Definitely something that I think should be read if you're interested in all at all in how studies and tests and things like that in science are built and brought about. All right, number six, did the test, did the study test the right thing? So in other words, even if the results were 100% valid, even if the results of the study, the construction of the study was 100% credible, is the information learned from the study going to move the needle? Is it? Is it going to make you a better picture? So like in this particular case, is the information learned from this study, is the information, even if it's 100% accurate, even if we can take out of it, if we can draw out of this information and, and we can conclude from the study with 100% certainty, the results, are those results, is that information going to... Move the needle that we're trying to move and how much so. And in this particular case, is our pitcher is going to get more outs by doing this training? pitcher is going to stay healthier by doing this training? So at the end of the day, you have to look at it. Is this study even testing out something that's a big needle mover or not? In most cases it is, but I've actually seen studies over the years that I said, this study is irrelevant to actually what, what they're trying to accomplish in the long run, the big picture. For Mike's study, I believe he did an outstanding job of designing the training methods to match the training methods used by many of the popular weighted ball programs. He tried to match up his program to match those out there. The majority, or the popular weighted ball programs out there. I think that's great. He didn't try to make up something different. He tried to emulate or mimic what was already out there. He did a great job of that. In his article, I really like how he starts off by saying, hey, there's still questions that we need answers to. I like that. It comes across as humble, but it's honest and transparent. He's not just saying that to say it. I hear sometimes in these baseball podcasts or just podcasts, I hear somebody say something that I believe they think is 100% right. And in fact, I agree 100%. I think the evidence is very clear a lot of times on certain things that it's the right way to do it. And even then they say, well, you you know, that's kind of my way of looking at it. I don't know. Everybody has their way of looking at it. I think that that we have to be careful not to just defer kind of artificially invalidate something that we believe in, and really, I think has been proven true over time. I mean, baseball is not a new sport. It's been around over 150 years and the body has been around for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands, and thousands of years. So it's not like this is just something that was come up like internet or, or the iPad or things that just were developed recently that, yeah, are going to go or, or SpaceX or you know Tesla, things that can definitely evolve quickly and have a lot of improving to do and a lot of understanding to go through that are a lot of things that we got to start to learn more about. Baseball has been around, the parameters, the rules. I've talked about this many a times. I think we treat baseball like it's this, this blank canvas that we've never learned anything about. It's been around forever. With that said, I do want to share some notes of caution about the study. It's only a six-week program. I talked about that. Now, there was the follow-up, and I think it's important that they did that. There was a follow-up to the program. Also, he talks about the risk of or the stress involved with pitching or, or using the weighted ball. I should say the, the stress. We talk about the stress, the risk of anything. And I use this kind of analogy. I was talking to a neighbor of mine the other day, Nick, and he was talking about signing his son up for tackle football or flag football or not, nothing, none of the above. And I said, hey, you know, I think college football and pro football, there's definitely some head damage going on. And there's definitely some things that I think we got to be real careful about and change some rules. I think this kamikaze, head first, a nosedive, hitting, tackling, so go back and watch a football NFL film video from like the fifties and yeah, it's faster. The players are faster now. Sure. But their technique, like tackling, they use their arms a lot more than now They just missile at people. So anyways, I was talking to my neighbor about this and I said, Hey, you know, there's one way of looking at it. Well, do you want your kid to suffer some maybe a, a concussion while he's in high school or maybe a knee injury and again I do think that once you get to the elite levels that where they're just flying so fast especially the NFL then I don't know I'm, I'm a little <laughs> that definitely would worry me as a parent I would I'm lucky I don't have a son uh, then I would definitely be very hesitant to play like that level but when you play like Pop Warner and things like that and, and junior high and high school I don't think it's fast enough and I don't think they play long enough to have enough injuries or Especially head injuries, I, in my opinion, that are going to be just these life-altering. Now that again, there are definitely some kids I'm sure that have had some injuries that that are pretty bad. But my point is this: Do you want him to suffer from 60 years of being a wimp because he's not a, he's not you know going through that tough double days, those tough practices, getting physical? Do you want him to suffer? And and do you want him to be on video games for 20 years of his childhood and then and then get to the real world and just kind of be soft and and then get beat down by the real world? for for 50 years? Or do you want them to get tough from playing sports? Do you want them to get tough from playing football? Do you want that toughness that can last for 60 years? Or do you want to give them a sentence of being 50 years of being a wimp? And I'm not saying everybody who doesn't play football is a wimp or everybody that, that does play football is tough, but I think we have to look at the trade-off. So when you do weighted ball throwing, there's going to be a risk. When you weight lift, there's going to be a risk. When you do squats, you're putting stress on your knees and it's just part of the risk. When you go outside, you take the risk of of getting hit by a car if you cross the street. But if you sit inside your whole life and don't do anything, don't move, what's the risk of being sedentary? What's the mental risk? of not going out and living life a little bit. He talked about, you know, moving through a greater range of motion, increase the stress of the arm, and I think it's something we got to be a little cognizant about, like, hey, alright, if you don't want a player to have any arm injuries, then he should never pitch. But if he doesn't pitch, maybe he's not a part of a team, maybe this, you know, I think it's something to trade off. We want to do it in a healthy way, but also I think not doing it or or avoiding it is not always the best answer. Now, one thing they were surprised to find in the study was a significant gain in shoulder external range of motion. If you ever look at a pitcher that's, you know, loading up the pitch, you'll see their arm kind of lay back. It's called lay back external, a shoulder external rotation range of motion. Their arm really lays back almost like like you're pulling the slingshot back and then you're about to like whip it forward. They were surprised and this kind of surprised me that they were so surprised to find a significant gain in shoulder range of motion. I'm surprised because anybody, any pitcher, or any thrower, especially a pitcher that's thrown a football, say more than 10 times, can, with just a basic awareness, feel their arm and shoulder layback increase. They can see it get get greater just after 10 throws, and definitely they'll see a difference on throw 10 than on throw 1, 2, and 3. So there was a lot of good things about the study, how they designed it, I think how he how he summed it up, Mike summed it up, I think that was really good. So my final thoughts on this article and study are the increased range of motion, and in this case, shoulder external rotation. It's not a bad thing at all. And in fact, increased range of motion done in the correct frequency and at the correct volume will be beneficial to anyone who wants to move better. It's a matter of how, when, The volume and the weight in which it's done so there are parameters now the increased stress found by the study on the ulnar collateral ligament the ucl think tommy john not the comfortable boxer briefs but the common elbow injury incurred by the pitchers the increased stress could very well be okay in so far as the athlete the thrower the pitcher cautiously on ramps the program optimizes the volume of throws uses efficient throwing techniques and lastly, in my opinion, allows for adequate rest, repair and growth and strengthening. But how often are those requirements followed closely? How often are those parameters stayed within? Not very often, right? I don't think all four of those. Let's, let me let me let me say it one more time. I do believe that a weighted ball program can help, can be beneficial. But you gotta know what you're doing. There's still questions to be answered on this. Every player is going to be different, so you can't cookie cut their approach because every player's. You can cookie cut part of it, sure, but you can't cookie cut all of it, and you have to adapt it for the player's age, their Body development, their technique, big part of it's just their throwing technique is terrible. I wouldn't even allow a player to use it unless they got their throwing technique, say 90% efficiency. So I think it's important. You gotta, you, you wanna do this, you gotta on-ramp cautiously. You gotta on-ramp efficiently the program. You gotta optimize the volume of throws. You can't do too many in one particular session. You gotta use an efficient throwing technique and that's something that most throwers, especially younger throwers, just aren't very good. I mean, in fact, most major leaguers and professional players have inefficient throwing techniques. So now you're adding weight to that. Now you're adding extra stress to that. Ooh, watch out. And lastly, are we allowing for adequate rest? Are we just trying to like just cram it in, in and in, say, like an eight week program or I got three weeks or sorry, I got three months to get ready and I'm going to do it four times a week. Well, is that an adequate amount of rest? I don't know. It doesn't seem like it. And definitely it doesn't seem like it if the volume of throws in each session and the technique is not good or the volume is too much. So I can see why Mike comes across as a bit apprehensive as we move forward as a baseball community with these weighted ball training programs. There's a benefit, there's a risk. The problem is individualizing the program, I think, to each kid. You know what? I mean, until we can see inside of an arm and see on the microscope, the cellular level, the damage or the stress and this, and then we can, and then we know exactly what we're looking at on top of that and able to assess that stress and and how the the damage or the lack of damage or this and the fatigue and whatnot, the muscle, until we can see that, those questions that still need to be answered out there, um, we got to wait for. With a well-strengthened, well-prepared athlete, pitcher, that have largely optimized their throwing technique, which is very few, that are onboarding the program cautiously, which doesn't seem like a lot. It seems like people are in a hyper hurry, the hurry to get fast, better results that are allowing for rest and repair between throwing sessions that are avoiding an excess of volume of throws at each session then if all of those are met well then I do believe that a weighted ball throwing program can be beneficial and also have very limited risk we definitely know it can increase velocity but how much risk is associated with it and also one thing we haven't talked about at all here is does it improve the accuracy, or does it hurt the accuracy of the pitcher? Does it improve the pitcher overall on the mound? Does it make, does it allow them to get more outs more efficiently while also staying healthy? So, I wanted to touch base on this article. Go read the article if you have time, especially if you're a coach that works specifically with pitchers. Definitely, if you're a pitching coach that's using weighted ball training or a professional player or a college player or a high school player that's using that or you're a parent that has players using it, go read that article. But I really tried to sum it up here as best I could. I think it's really important to break it down into a way that everybody can kind of see it and, and with some clarity and get something out of it. So if you have any questions on that, email me at coachbo at 8020baseball.com. The website, it's coming along here. I'm having it rebuilt. I wanted to make it even better. We built it about a year ago. And I just went through a overhaul to make it better for you and the people that are visiting that are coming to it. So right now it's still undergoing that buildup and I got some people working on it and myself, I'm working on it too. That when that comes back here and I'll let you know when that goes back online there is a dynamic warm up there is a dynamic warm up that is built that I have built that's on there that's available for you that uses weighted balls but not in a throwing way but in a way that you can use it as part of your warm up routine to help actually give your arm a healthier start to a throwing program now it's not a massive throwing routine program or throwing weighted ball throwing program like the one that Mike did or that you see out there in a lot of places it's a warm-up or part of the warm-up part of the dynamic warm-up for the arms for the shoulders and it's very effective in getting the arms loose you never want to throw to warm up you want to warm up to throw you want to warm up before you throw you don't want your first arm warm-up to be a throw or part of your throwing program When that's back up, I'll let you know. And that's it. This has been Coach Bo with 8020 Baseball. hope you guys are enjoying this. If you got any comments, questions, coachbo at 8020baseball.com. You can follow me at Twitter, 8020 underscore baseball. Take care of yourselves. Take care of your families. And I'll see you on the flip side in episode 35. This has been the 8020 Baseball Masterclass. Take it to the field. (laughs) We'll <laughs>